Okay, I'll start that over. Hi, my name is Anna, and I am an alcoholic. Hi, uh, Grateful, sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. My sobriety date is 4-19-2021, one day before 4-20, and I will get into that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I hesitate sometimes to bring up other issues, but you know what? I'm in this chair, and my higher power was like, girl, just be as honest as you can. I'm a little terrified. I've never shared my story in person, and it hits different when people are looking at you. So um, glad you're all here. Uh, so, you know, in general, it's like what, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now I doubt I'll take up the whole time, but anything could happen, so I don't know. Um, but I'll, I'll keep an eye on it, because uh, I do have a little bit of time blindness. Um, so I'll get back to what it was like, and I am going to go a little ways back. People seem to do that and go back to their, you know, their origin stories, so I'll do a little bit of that today. Um, I was born here. I'm one of those unicorns that was born and raised in Austin, Texas. I was in a little from a little land called Wells Branch, out <laughs> uh, yonder, about twenty minutes north of here, and um, was born into a family of two girls, and I was the unexpected third child. And um, when I share my story, I always want to s- start with this, which is evidence to me of like I really do think that we're born this way. Um, and I don't have any recollection of this memory, but it was told to me uh, by trusted sources that when I was about three years old, I was sitting at the dinner table and I had a glass of milk and I spilled a little bit of it. And then I poured the rest out. <laughs> I was like, fuck it, all or nothing, done. <laughs> and it was just like when I heard that story later in life, I was like, that makes so much sense to me. I really do think that we're, you know, in a large way, we're born this way. Um, so when I was born, my dad was a real estate agent. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. Uh, mom really struggled with... Uh, both of my parents came from really awful uh, home situations. You know, my mom was from a showbiz family uh, and, you know, just really terrible abuse on all sides. And so they met each other in the Baptist church, and they decided things were going to be different for us. Um, so from day one, it was, you know, our house was very religious, um, and eventually they became a part of a church that was, um, pretty indoctrinating and abusive, um, which I didn't come to realize until much later in life, but, you know, so I came in with two older sisters, um, and, you know, had kind of an okay little childhood there for a second, uh, our dad, uh, you know, since he worked in real estate, we had some means to go on little family vacations and do some fun stuff. And um, But things started to shift where, you know, all the while my dad was an alcoholic. Um, and there's a lot of family secrets. And he hid that from everybody. Um, but uh, there came a point in my childhood where I was like, wow, my sisters really hate me. You know, like my sisters were kind of like, I always say they're kind of like Regina George and Mean Girls, you know, like they were popular and ever blonde and pretty. Well, one of them was blonde, one of them was brunette, but they, um, 
they were everything I wasn't. Like, one of them was a basketball star. The other was, like, a volleyball team person and, like, popular and a dancer. And then there was me, and I liked <coughs> Zelda. Um, and writing, like, Zelda fan fiction at some point and, like, playing Rachmaninoff. And, you know, I was a different kid. Like, you know, and so really the only person that I had in my life was my dad. Like, my mom was, a, you know, trying to raise two kids. And my older sisters, even though they, they hated me, they also hated each other a lot and so my childhood was really marked by a lot of just like random screaming fights and you know sometimes they would escalate uh, especially when the parents were at home uh, one of my sisters would get so had a rage problem um and it was pretty terrifying you know she would like at one point she would like chase my other sister around with a kitchen knife and like scream i'm gonna kill you and i would just like hide in my room and be like i'm not here you know, so I learned this set of coping skills long before I ever picked up a drink. Um, that it was better to hide out from life. Um, and that no one was really there for you, you know. Um, I had a grandmother who I was close with, but she was a pretty bad alcoholic too. She would drive me around pretty drunk. And all of this is in retrospect, because when you're raised in it, you don't know any better. You're like, everybody's grandma drives around with wine in the car and slurs her words. Um, and at her behest, I became, you know, a piano prodigy kid. I was just like, well, you know, I, I couldn't get, like, I was a pretty neglected kid with my sisters, like, beating up on each other all the time and, like, hating each other's guts. And um, my dad being a workaholic, alcoholic, um, and I also learned later a sex addict. Um, he had a lot going on. And then my mom was a raging codependent with a lot of really difficult health problems. And like I, I to give a picture of what neglect looked like for me was, you know, when I came home from elementary school, I uh, didn't even have a key to the house. I went in through the dog door uh, and I just didn't know any better. There was a teacher one time who was like, excuse me, what? You go home to an empty house and go through the dog door? And I was like, no, 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 it's fine. They're, like, you don't understand. You know, like protecting my family. I just, I hurt so much. And I learned to shut it out from a really young age. And then my first drug of choice was food and video games. Um, I could kick your ass at James Bond in 64. <laughs> I memorized all the algorithms for the temple. I'll murder you. Um, and I... You know, I just, I had a lot of feelings about stuff, but I didn't have access to them starting at a really young age. And I'm learning later in life as I get well in recovery and in, you know, outside help that I didn't have a choice in that. You know, how we react as kids, we're surviving. So, um, you know, things kind of were like, you know, for the longest time I was like, oh, things were okay. And I was like, things were never okay. Um, like one, uh, when I was growing up also, my, I went out to the, the fridge and saw that there was like a huge amount of beer in the fridge. And with the religious stuff, you know, my parents and being raised in alcoholic homes, all I knew is that they were like, we don't like drinking. They didn't harp on it a whole lot, but I was really shocked as like a 10 year old kid to find all this beer in the fridge. And then the next day it was all gone. And it was only later in life that I learned that my dad had drank every single bit of that beer in one night. I'm talking like at least two 24 packs, maybe more. Um, so a lot of secrets and a lot of pain. And my parents' marriage was really, really, really strained. And so all throughout all of that, my dad 
was my person, you know? Like, he was... He loved how weird I was. And he'd be like, you want to go to Barnes & Noble? And I, he'd be like, what are you interested in? And I was like, telekinesis. <laughs> and he went right up to the people and was like, she'd like books about telekinesis. And I was like, dad, stop. <laughs> you know? Like, he didn't give a rip how weird I was. He loved me just as I was. And I really leaned on that as a kid, you know? So, um, but I look at like my childhood and also coming into adulthood and up until my thirties as just getting more and more and more alone. There's a chapter in the big book and other stories that talks about, uh, this woman who has a, a disability and blindness. And she, she says at one point, I was different and I hurt. That was me. I was different and I hurt really deeply. And, um, I just dug deeper and deeper down into a spiral of depression and felt very deeply. You know, alcoholics were really deeply feeling people. Um, and I had no way to cope with it. And so I just shut down, you know, pretty early on. And my dad was actually undiagnosed bipolar one and an alcoholic. When I was a teenager, uh, some weird stuff started to happen in our house. Um, and my dad was, uh, you know, the abusive religion stuff. I'm not going to get into that. Suffice it to say, it was a, it was, it was a cult. Um, <laughs> it's hard to describe, but it was a very um, dogmatic, indoctrinative church where, uh, especially in the youth group practices, like, you know, like one year at church camp, they cut off a girl's hair in front of everybody. Uh, I yours truly actually got crucified at church camp one year as part of a camp drama, and it was only like like two years later, not two years, ten years later that I was like telling that story where of the game of friends playing. My church was weirder than yours, and I was like, oh really? And then I told that story, and I started shaking, and realized, oh that sucked, you know. And I just like had so I didn't matter at home. And in the, you know, abusive form of, and this is not me being like, yeah, fuck religion. I was that way for a while when I got sober because I was really, really pissed. Um, but this, this group of, this branch of uh, religion that I was involved with, it was very much like who you are is wrong. You are bad. You are wrong. And you need to um, repent, you piece of shit, essentially. And... Uh, that I already felt so bad about myself. I didn't fit in with my uh, sisters. I didn't fit in at home. I didn't fit in at school. Um, I didn't fit. And I was just like, okay, well, I got my dad. You know, uh, we're, we're going to be okay. So he started to progress in his illness. And this was back in like 2003, 2004. I mean, people still struggle to understand this stuff. And, you know, back then there was, I had never even heard of it. Um, and it would be years until he got a diagnosis. And, uh, so one of my sisters had gone off to college. The other had gone off to college and flunked out. And, you know, here's me trying to be the, you know, idyllic golden child of like, well, I'm going to get straight A's and I'm going to be the choir president and a piano prodigy, you know, just like overachiever, still feeling like I was a piece of shit. Um, and, uh, somewhere in there, my dad's behavior really started to change and coupled with the abusive religion factor that that manifested as him like kicking our mom out of his room and placing, you know, pictures of like, 
angels and demons on the wall and screaming at the top of his lungs and stabbing knives through their hearts and doing spiritual warfare and it was uh it was absolutely terrifying it was like i watched the man i knew disappear before my eyes and i was like what is happening to you and you know all the while i'm like something's wrong and everybody in the family is like nope nothing's wrong everything's fine um and i was like okay is it though like i you know i felt insane um and you know the business that my dad had had for about 25 years went under he lost it we lost our house we got it foreclosed on um and my parents were now gonna have to get a divorce and this was when i was 17 and i had about a year left of high school and uh my mom and i had to leave um and she had about 200 bucks to her name and it was only through the grace of some strangers that somebody knew through the church that were like hey they want to give you this place to live they have it for missionaries and they heard your story and they'd like you to have it um so in one moment i lost my family my house uh and eventually my religion because the church really looked down on my mom leaving my dad even though it was like I think she was right to do that. Um, And both of my parents were kind of using me as a surrogate spouse at that time. They were asking me, should I leave your your dad? Should I? And I'd be like, "Uh," you know, I just wanted to be anything I could so that they would love me, you know? So sad for that version of myself, you know? I have so much love and understanding for her now. But all of that to set up, <laughs> going to college right after that. And it's like, guess what? Your family's gone, your house is gone, and your church has pretty much kind of kicked you out softly and been like, yeah, like just gossiping about our family. It was really painful. And I still tried to hang on to that, to the religion, because I was like, I was lost. And now my dad was homeless, like going from being a real estate, um, you know, just superhero dad figure to be homeless and I was so lost um I you know by the time I got to college I went to college here at UT um I hadn't picked up a drink or a drug in my entire life I had other ways of disassociating (laughs) and um I couldn't get out of bed in the mornings I was crying all the time I was just like something is wrong and I hurt and I just had no idea of like that any of that that I had gone through was difficult or hard. You know, I was just like, why can't I get it together? You know, still trying to like, it was all up to me. Um, and I had lost my religion too. And it's, it was kind of a soft fallout with the religion because it took me a while to realize that like, wait a minute, I don't fucking believe this, you know? And then that was a turning point for me when I was just like, fuck it, my dad's homeless uh shit's weird uh finally moved out of college campus living and I wasn't it wasn't until I was like in 19 or 20 that I had my first drink and I don't have the same drink story as a lot of people I tried my first beer and I was kind of like uh that's all right it's not very good I don't like it um and it doesn't matter that's the thing like so many things that I had checked off the boxes like well I was never lived under a bridge well I never did that like it doesn't fucking matter if you're an alcoholic you're an alcoholic and um so I'll circle back around a beer later though (laughs) because you know you don't get everything on your first try for me (laughs) for me it was more I remember my first time getting stoned and that feeling I was like this is it 
you know? I, as someone who had had major anxiety and major depression and another health, undiagnosed health issue that I found out about in sobriety that I will get to, everything just quieted, you know, in the same way people describe with alcohol. And alcohol became that for me, too. Um, and it was just immediately like, okay, I'll go ahead and have that feeling all the time, you know. Uh, and so it became kind of a, a major pothead, like, overnight, Um and was studying to get my history degree in college. I was like a World War II honors scholar. And the whole time too, you know, because my self-esteem was so low, I kept telling myself that I was just, yeah, I'm not very smart. Uh, Everybody's pretty, you know, they're smarter. I didn't have any confidence. Like I was telling a friend the other day about like the things we tell ourselves to survive what we've been through, you know, it's like, I didn't get a C once in college. I graduated with a 3.6. I placed out of college math and got a B in college calc without ever studying. Like I had all of these outward evidences of like, you're not stupid, (laughs) you know, but it didn't matter because my self-esteem was so low that I didn't feel like I could do anything. And so when I got into the history honors program, I was like, yeah, well, they probably just let anybody in, you know, and I was working two jobs. Um, I'm, I'm a violinist and... I got a job playing for the Temple Symphony. So I was working a job playing for the Temple Symphony and in an honors program where I had to write like 50 papers in one semester. And all the while was like, you know, so all of this is to say I'm the type of alcoholic that's on the side of the coin of like, I'm the lowest of the low. Everybody uh, is better than me. I'm so, you know, the false pride, like God has higher standards for me somehow uh, than other people. And it was really during the experience of living off campus, you know, starting to get introduced. Like, I wasn't the college party kid. I was always the kind of person who just progressively found alcohol and weed and escaped into it. And then before I knew it, it was like I always had those things on me. And I would go to a party and be like, see, I'm doing it. I'm doing the normal human thing. But really what it looked like was getting really stoned and really drunk by myself alone. And it was recreating what I knew. I grew up being alone. That's where I was comfortable. That's where I felt safe. And um, so after that semester, you know, (laughs) I went out and had like the wild little former church kid course correction adolescence that I didn't get to have and like went to Europe and like did whatever I wanted you know, threw up in a German club somewhere, you know, just like had the, what I thought was like the time of my life. And then, <laughs> you know, after doing all of that, I came back and I was so depressed. This was my 21st birthday. And I was so burnt out. And it was the next semester, I was only taking six hours and I had to take an incomplete on both of them because I had a <clears throat> mental breakdown. I you know, I had all of this pain and, you know, here I have only like maybe one or two years of trying to cover it up with drugs and alcohol. And already I was skidding out, you know, so I did what any good alcoholic would do and decided maybe I should date a drug dealer. (laughs) (laughs) So I did. (laughs) And, uh, was understandably or not surprisingly a pretty sociopathic individual who I got myself into a domestic violence situation before I even graduated college. Um, and again, you know, this is something that, you know, when I start talking, hopefully soon about what it's like now, (laughs) uh, I learned that low self-esteem is actually a character defect. Um, that that is something that gets in between 
the way of me and my higher power. Um, and that low self-esteem kept me in that relationship for a really long time. Um, and I had to go to the police. I had, they didn't believe me. Um, they discouraged me from getting a restraining order. I got threats from this individual. I got, he tried to make me lose my job at one point, uh, was stalking me. I just see him at different, it was terrifying. Um, I knew he had a gun. Um, and it was really difficult to leave. If ever you see or, you know, haven't had experience with those in your life that are staying with somebody that is clearly a piece of shit and you're like, why don't they leave? Well, it's because it's dangerous and they don't feel supported a lot of the time. It's the most dangerous when you leave. And that was true for me. Um, so thankfully I had parents that lived in Round Rock at the time. Uh, my mom got remarried. Um, and by this time, so... My dad, bless him, he had finally gotten diagnosed. Um, and it was like, no, you're not crazy. You're, you're sick. Um, and got diagnosed uh, correctly. And he got off the streets. And he got his own place. And he started going to get his master's at Seminary of the Southwest to be a counselor. And it was him... I reconnected with him in about 2010. It had been almost four years since I had seen him. You know, my person. Um, I was mad, you know. I was like, why did you do this to me? And, you know, we worked it out. I met with him at the same Chinese restaurant every week for years. And it was rocky at first. And it was hard. Um, But we built the most beautiful relationship out of that. Um... And it was finally after reconnecting with him, he's the one that got me out of that abusive relationship. And he just looked at me and said, honey, are you happy? And I broke. And then I broke up with this guy like three days later. Um, But after that, I realized, okay, something's wrong. It's probably not the drugs or the alcohol, but something's wrong. Um, And proceeded to go to Al-Anon for about 10 years. And I worked the steps in Al-Anon. I worked them really hard. I was actually sober for a a good bit of it. Um, And the first year I was in Al-Anon, I got a great sponsor. And I was kind of just sober by circumstance, you know? I just was, like, at my parents' house and clearly not having access because I dumped my drug dealer boyfriend. Um, And, uh, I mean, I was just, like... I, I mean, that's when I started the first phase of getting my feelings back, you know, and it wouldn't stick until I made it in here. Um, and I remember, like, I hadn't been feeling feelings my entire life. Um, and when I started to have feelings for the first time, the first time I had a real feeling of grief and sadness, uh, I broke out in hives all over because my body didn't know how to react to a feeling. It was just like, I don't know, cinder hives. Does that, does that match? <laughs> you know? Uh, and it was, I felt like a robot learning how, like, that was, like, rewiring and, like, recalibrating. It was so uncomfortable. And my sponsor would be like, it's okay, you're just thawing out. And I was like, I hate this. Um, but I kept at it. And, um, you know, I was feeling kind of like, okay, I'm going to get there. And then, 2013 is when things really switched for me. Uh, and that's the year that I started, I got my two excuses for why I was gonna be a drunk for the rest of my life. One of those was in February of 2013, I witnessed a fatal hit and run accident up close. Um, and it was, I was really messed up by it. I was like, God, that 
why did I have to see that? And I was like dealing with it. And then a week and a half later, my dad had relapsed on alcohol and he died. And I was lost. I was so lost. I, I couldn't feel any bit of it. I was even sober at the time. And, uh, you know, my person was gone. He was gone. And I was not okay. Uh, you know, and I, so I leaned into Al-Anon and I tried and I tried. You know, I'd say probably three months in, I was drinking again. And I never stayed sober since. I got back into pot and it just progressed. Like this disease is progressive, you know? And I just got in the case of the fuckets and the geographical cures and the relationships that were really shady and the, I'm gonna go be a musician in Nashville for a while. And I did, and it was fun. I wish I could remember a lot of it. Um, but I just needed more and more and more. And I had these bouts, just like it's described in the big book of like, you know, we swear it off and then we're right back where we started and then some. And that was me. Um, and I always just said to myself, I drink because I hurt and things happened to me. You know, that I drank because I was raised in a cult. I drank because of this. I drank because I saw this hit and run and my dad died. And, you know, I had this list of reasons and I was going to tell you, like, no, I get to be fucked up, you know. And um, it was just the same story in the big book that I was referencing. The woman with blindness, you know, she had these three little old ladies come to a 12-step call at her house. And she's talking about her disability and all the things and the reasons why she drinks. And these three little old ladies are listening to her. And she's going, I drink because my husband hits me. And one of the ladies will pat her hand and say, that's not why you drink. You know, and she goes down all these lists. And she finally says, I drink because I'm disabled. And the little old ladies pat her hand and say, that's not why you drink. You know? Meaning, I drank because I'm an alcoholic, you know? People who have survived, like, civil wars and, you know, incredible feats uh, don't turn out to be alcoholics, you know? So I had to get good and miserable. Um, By the time I was willing to come in and work AA, I gave it one go in 2018, and I had driven in a blackout state, and I was like, that's the first time I've done that. And I'm like, no, it fucking wasn't. (laughs) That was the first time I remembered it. Uh, And, you know, I was so freaked out, though, because I remembered it, and I found, like, a bowl of cereal on my bed, and I just felt yuck. I was like... (gasps) I could have killed somebody or killed myself. And by this point, I was really self-focused. I was like, I could have died, you know, (laughs) which that's the case so many times over. Like I could have died at the biker bar where everybody was on heroin and I was getting hit on by a felon with tattoos for eyebrows, you know, like (laughs) the fact that I'm alive is really just kind of fucking luck. Um, But I went to AA, went for a month, didn't talk to anybody, got a desire chip and was like, thanks. And proceeded to never come back because I was just like surrounded by people. And I was in Nashville at the time, other drunks who were like, nah, girl, you're not an alcoholic, you know, like you're just made a bad decision. And I was like, yeah, 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 you're right. And so as it goes, it got worse and worse and worse. And to the point where I couldn't really play music anymore. And I had some other health issues, to be fair. I don't know what that ratio is of what was what. Um... But I had been a touring musician for about seven years. And one day I came home from a tour and I couldn't pick up my violin. And I was like, immediately (laughs) self-pity. You know, like, 
life is so hard and this isn't fair. And, you know, things got so bad being in this like perpetual self-will run riot state for so many years that I moved back home with my parents in what should have been a bottom from Nashville to Austin. And the problem was just like that story in the big book. It was like, I drank because of this and I, you would drink if you were me too, you know? And um, I lived with my parents. They, you know, I was such a secretive little drunk. I wasn't hiding it from anybody, but I don't think anybody but me knew the extent of it, which is true, I think, for a lot of us, maybe. And um, it was just felt really fucking sorry for myself. I had to make amends to both of my parents for that um, and just be like, listen, I'm sorry you had to live with me when I was such a sack of shit. And feeling really sorry for myself, you know? And they were like, my mom called it a living amends, the way that I'm working my program now. Um, but I really needed a job. I was in a lot of debt from not being able to hold down a job. And I said it was for health issues. And it's also also because I was an addict and an alcoholic. Same thing. Addict, alcoholic, it's all the same. Um, so I got a job after like seven or eight months, you know, it could have taken me about a month, took me a long time. And I was super depressed. I was like, I lost my music career. And now I'm here with my parents and uh, finally got a job uh, and started working it. And I was like, okay, I got a nine to five and this, I'm turning things around, you know, like, look at me, I'm doing the thing. And, um, you know, and then COVID happened and we went all completely remote. So that it was like, okay, now I can get stoned all day, every day. And then soon enough, I was drinking all day, every day. And I just didn't see any fucking problems with that, you know? And sooner or later, I was like, I want to go back to Nashville and make some music and cleared it with my boss. He didn't give a shit. Um, went to Nashville and spun out within like a month, you know, had like a string of like, you know, one night stands and just crazy behavior. Like I was a college kid again, but as a 32 year old woman at the time. And that's when I realized after I was going to the CVS at least twice a week, getting myself a Pedialyte, uh, drinking so much wine at a hotel one night that I had to like, you know, cross my eyes to see the TV. Um, you know, squinting at the road so I could drive almost every time I was driving, you know, it just got so acute. And I woke up with such a bad hangover one morning. And I just had this like, shame filled epiphany of like, I've been here too many times. I felt this way too many times. I hate myself. I hate myself. And I called my aunt. She's been sober for about 40 years. And she said, honey, you keep having this issue where you want to stop drinking and you can't, you know, maybe you're powerless over it. And I was just like, you're right. You know, and I had probably like $40 worth of McDonald's on my bed the next day when I woke up hungover because it was a work night. And I was like listening in to meetings like off camera and like, you know, knowing like I've got to get fucking sober. I had no idea how to do it. I showed up to meetings and I was like, okay, I put down alcohol and I was stoned out on my gourd. Like I was like, I can do this. I just won't get stoned. Like there's no requirement for quitting weed. And so for at least three weeks, like I was stoned all the time, you know, like, and I was like, I'm doing it. See? And I, I just so happened to meet a woman who I should say, girl, my sponsor is nine years younger than me, which is doesn't fucking matter in this program. Time is nothing. Um, 
And I just so happened to talk to her and said, you know, uh, would you sponsor me? And she was like, yeah, did you say you smoke pot though? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. And she was like, how often do you smoke? And I said, occasionally. <laughs> and the fucked up thing is that I believed that. I believed that getting stoned every five minutes of every day for 10 years was occasional pot use. And um, she didn't say, well, you should probably, qu- you, you need to quit. You know, she just said, in my experience, it's a good idea for you to put it down to work this program. And I was like, yeah, you're probably right. And then three weeks later, it was so unceremonious. I was just like, you know what? Fuck this shit. And, you know, I was just like, <laughs> I guess I'm done. And I gave my away my paraphernalia to my pot-smoking roommate at the time. And, you know, all of this, while well, I was discovering um, I need to be sober and, like, you know, could have absolutely gone to rehab. I was sweating through my sheets every night. And, man, I did the thing I said I wasn't going to do and spent all this time on how it was. <laughs> but... Um, so, you know, I was like, I guess I'm going to be sober now. And for three months, I was calling my sponsor hyperventilating all the time. Life was so loud and blurry. And without the things to depress my system, I thought that I was not going to make it. I thought everything, everything, you know, here I am again. I was different and I hurt. And I would show up to meetings and just rage about everything. And I made one of my best friends in recovery that way. And we went to the Everglades a couple weeks ago. Uh, she was like, hey, you want to be friends? You seem angry and weird. Um, and uh, so I sponsor was like, all right, I'll be your sponsor. Um, I need you to go ahead and read the one, six, first 164 of the big book. And I was like, yeah, okay. And I started reading it and I was like, Emily, I don't think this applies to me. And, you know, just did the quintessential alcoholic thing, which was like, this isn't me. This isn't what I'm like. And I took notes in my big book. It's actually in my car. And it's like, it's, there's a progression in there going from this isn't me to this sounds familiar to, oh my God, it's me. <laughs> You know, I realize that alcoholism is a state of mind and a spiritual condition. It's really the drinking is but a symptom of it. And so I'll never forget taking the first step, you know, after like maybe two months. It took me a minute. I wasn't one of those people that immediately got it um, because I was fucking lucky enough to not have these consequences. You know, I don't think for a second like I wasn't that bad because I never got pulled over. It's like, no, I was fucking lucky. That's what that was. Um, And so I was sitting on my front lawn in Nashville, Tennessee. And I was like, I think I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) Like, oh my God, wow. You know, and it was like, duh. You know, like all this time, like, you know, alcoholism is rampant in my family. My dad died from it. My grandmother was like, oh, he's alcoholics. And I was like, fuck, okay. Never want to have to have that realization again, but okay, you know? And it was just off to the races from there. It was like, Oh, what do I do next? You know, I had the willingness. I was in so much pain because that's what it took for me to be like, I got to see this thing through because these fuckers look happy and I've never been happy in my life. Like, give me some of what you have. And I kept showing up and I hated it at first. I didn't want to come. I was mad. I was contrary. I was low self-esteem. You know, my sponsor was so patient with me. And I would have talked to her for three fucking hours if she would have let me. And she'd be like, hey, Anna Joy, which is also what I go by. Anna Joy is one of my other names. Um, And uh, she was like, just so you know, I have 15 minutes today. (laughs) I was like, 
And I do that on the reg, you know, if that's, you know, when I'm talking to anybody because, you know, I want to give people a heads up when I actually have 15 minutes. When I was like, I don't think she really just had 15 minutes. I think I just talked a lot. <laughs> and I'm glad she set those boundaries with me um, because I didn't know how to care about other human beings, you know, at the time. I didn't have that skill set. And so she took me through the fucking steps, you know. Uh, two was hard for me because I was like of the category of alcoholics that was like, religion fucked me up it was abusive i don't want anything to do with it and she recognized that and she was like yeah you've been through a lot of pain and trauma with the way that you were raised you need a you need a higher power that's much bigger than that and i started with uh basically like supernovas (laughs) because i was like those are big you know i'm not more powerful than that um so i started there (laughs) and kind of was like sure um that that makes sense to you know so i just did the steps the way that she outlined them and i would take my time and i would call her and i would ask questions i would call other women and ask them how they did it um which was a fucking miracle to go from a zelda rachmaninoff playing nerd who talked to nobody to a 30 how old am i now or was i then 33 year old you know getting sober for the first time alcoholic making phone calls like if that's not a spiritual experience i don't know what is um Three is still a tricky one for me because um, I don't even know. It's, I'm just now starting to know the difference of what it feels like to be in self-will and God's will. <laughs> and self-will feels pretty good in the short term, but pretty bad in the long run. And God's will is in the reverse, as I've heard it said. Um, so my sponsor had me write it all out. You know, for each of these steps, she had a worksheet. And she those are the things that I pass on to women I sponsor because it worked for me. And that's all I know is how to present it the way that it worked for me. Um, Four wasn't as rough as I thought. (laughs) Four was not the hardest step for me. Um, It was kind of a relief. It was intense. It was so much more of there was not a lot of emotion in it in writing it. It was just like, what happened? What did it affect? What's your part? And it was literally taking an inventory. And by the basis of the first three steps, I now had cultivated a little iota of self-love And when I was, like, shaking from fear, when I did have it for step four, I went back to one, two, and three. And I called somebody else. Um, uh, Five, man, that was the first uh, four step my sponsor had ever heard. And she was, like, going to pass out after it. Uh, But we got through it. And she even told me some things on there because I'm the type of alcoholic that takes everything as my fault and I'm worse than everybody. She had me take things off my list. You know, everybody's different. Some people come in with a fourth step that's this long. Uh, some people have, like me, I was like, everything, everything I did ever wrong. And she was like, okay, star that one, that one, and that one. These you did not have a part in. <laughs> These are you beating yourself up unnecessarily false pride shit. So she helped me clarify it. I couldn't have done that just by sitting on it and taking it to my higher power uh, alone. I needed to have another human being to take that stuff to. And it opened the way for me to get the other help that I needed in terms of uh, trauma recovery. So I could identify what was a sticking point for me. Um, Six and seven, man, those are my favorite fucking steps. Uh, I had a lot of resistance to them because they're good for you. (laughs) And I tend to resist things that are good good for me in the long run uh it took me like two months to do step seven it's a short fucking step but my sponsor wanted me to tell myself that i loved myself at the end of my step seven she said pick out a couple of the defects to work with this this go around with your steps and say the seventh step prayer and uh at the end of it tell yourself you love yourself and i was like yeah 
you know, I was sharing about this last night and it was just like so hard to do that. For me, it's easy for me to be like, yeah, I really fucked up here and I did this. But when it comes to like self-love and being like, I did the best that I could, I love myself. I was like, I can't. <laughs> like, and I just fucking did it anyway. Like, that's the the summary of this entire freaking talk is like, I didn't know how it was going to work out and I tried it anyway and it made a difference. Um, so one through seven, I was like, okay, we did those. Oh God, it's time for eight and nine. No. Um, and again, I did it anyway. Like when I started step eight, I literally told my sponsor, I opened my journal. I wrote down three names. I closed it and I said aloud, willing start. And I put it down. And then the next day I picked it up again and I wrote it again and I said, willingness. And I closed it. And then sure enough, after a time, I had a complete list I could bring to her. And she had me do it in three categories. You know, people I will make amends to, people I will think about making amends to, people I will never make amends to. And uh, we worked through those and we talked about my part in each one of them. And it was again like, huh clarity and yeah it was ego striking you know that's the only point of spiritual progress for me is not like yeah i was such a piece of shit look at me it's like more like oh wow i didn't see it that way and that hurts to find out initially but i can tell this is the thing that i need to hand over to my higher power and have long-term compassion for myself over um because i did the best that i did you know it's like not even i did the best that i can which is also true a lot i did the best that i did you know, and I can't change it now, but I can change how I react to life now. So about a year in, I finished nine and I very uncomfortably went to people who I thought would hate me and they fucking didn't. They were like, either, yeah, that really hurt me. Thank you for saying so. Or, um, I didn't even realize you did that or care about it, you know, and I was beating myself up unnecessarily. The ninth step was for me. You know, it's like, in my opinion, one of the most selfish steps because it's just like you're making amends to others and it does matter, but you're doing that. I did that so I didn't have to carry it around anymore. Um, And that was when I had my spiritual experience in this room, you know, that opened up. That's was like, oh, my God, nine step promises are a thing (laughs) like it opened up like this channel I could look the world in the eye a lot of people say that happens for them after four that wasn't my experience and everybody's different Uh, it was after nine that I started to feel like I was a member of the human race that I was just as fucked up as the next person that I wasn't better or worse than anybody else I was just here and 11 and 12 by the time those rolled around I was like yeah I did it like I got here I was ready I was like 11 give me it give me it you know but she was like yeah take your time with that um and about a year into my program I got through 12 and it was like holy shit Emily uh I think I did it (laughs) she was like yeah you did it this time around um and I I should say all of this it doesn't matter what we're facing when we get sober it's not a program for those who need it it's not a program even for those who want it it's a program for those who fucking do it and i did it and i had a lot of stuff surface i have major depressive disorder i have post-traumatic stress disorder i have you know all these things that are associated a lot of people um share about in these rooms that are really important to deal with too You know, dealing, if I didn't have the steps, if I didn't have this program, if I didn't have a sponsor and relationships in this program, I wouldn't have a fuck all shot 
at getting the help that I needed with those issues. I wouldn't. Um, that's when I discovered when I got sober, turns out when you're depressing your nervous system with lots of alcohol and lots of pot, it can cover up a lot of symptoms. And I figured out when I got sober that I actually had had an undiagnosed brain injury for almost 30 years, um, which it's pretty fascinating. You can actually have one of those and not know it for a really long time and just be like, yeah, everyone sees weird lights and like has like really strange motor movements that they can't control. It's like a thing. Um, so I went through treatment for that. Uh, when I was pretty brand new sober and it was one of the hardest things I ever did in my life. And I had moments where I was like, I have it so hard. And other, and I met other people where I got sober in Nashville that also had gotten sober and that also had traumatic brain injuries. And I was like, I'm not fucking unique. (laughs) I'm not, you know, we all have our stories. We're all different, but we are not unique. And what a fucking blessing that is. You know, like I have walked through life for the majority of it feeling so different and so in pain. And so the girl that was raised in a cult that lost her dad, you know, that was me. Um, And now I have a lot of friends. I go to a therapist. I talk to my sponsor. I sponsor women. I am of service. I do none of those things perfectly at all and it has added up to a life for me that I'm like today you know just like I had pretty tired getting back into the swing of 2023 and you know work is speeding up and I just sat there I was like life is fucking good you know Uh, I've reached the point where I might start crying if I don't wrap it up um (laughs) life is really really good it really fucking is um And for someone like me to say that after years of feeling so alone and in so much pain and so angry and all of the things, the fact that I can deal with life someday with some grace and some clarity and some humor, the only reason I have that is because of other people. I had tried to get well by myself for most of my life and it doesn't work, not for me. And um, so that's pretty much it. I didn't leave us time like I said I would. I took the whole fucking time. Uh, Good for me, right? Um, And I'm really grateful to be a member of this fellowship. Uh, The love I have for you all is, is so huge. So thank you.